If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be violent and exhausting, and here's why. Bummer. In this episode, we find some answers to how can we create a feeling of heroes against insurmountable odds? And what are the critical beats to hit and pitfalls to avoid with wave combat? And what are some of the systems we can lean on when we need all-out war? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Travis. And I'm his brother, Jordan. Today, we're talking about wave combat because it's one of those set piece moments that you build up to, and we always want it to be one of the most grand and epic parts of our games. At the edge of the wooden fortified walls, visibility is low into the darkness, dim moonlight, and gently falling snow. It is the calm before the storm. Cutting through the soft silence is the blaring of a war horn. Torches in the distance alight, illuminating a massive skeletal face. As it approaches, you might notice it's affixed to the front of a battering ram. The ram sways in the air as it comes to an immediate halt. Three groups of grinning dog-like demons appear at the tree line, barely illuminated by their torches. The wizards have only just begun their ritual to seal the open hellmouth. Their eyes have all rolled back into their heads as they channel magical energy they need to accomplish their crucial task. Any disruption to their magical ritual could mean outright failure and the slow, violent destruction of the country you currently call home at the hands of demonic forces. They begin to yip and cackle in the distance like ravenous hyenas. Synchronized, two groups drop their still-burning torches and dash forward in the darkness. As the third start to push the armored battering ram towards the front gate, and it begins. The battle has been long, vicious. You fought well. You've taken on some fresh wounds, and you're exhausted. Perhaps as you catch your breath, you wonder how much more you could continue fighting like this before you fell. Could the gnolls possibly have more to throw at you before you're given too much time to dwell on the precarious place you're in? Your answer comes in the form of a deep, guttural roar. Dozens of gnolls step into visible range. They are calm and quiet. The trees are parted and pushed aside like tall grass by an impossibly large creature whose eyes burn like red embers in the darkness. It steps forth into the moonlight, a massive axe shining. It is adorned with humanoid skulls and the fur is matted with blood up to its knees. It howls wildly and looks to its roots whipping them into a frenzy of furious barking and growling. The bloodlust they feel is telegraphed across the clearing and past your crumbling fortifications. Calling on the favor of any gods you pray to might be your best and last course of action. 
So wave combat's an idea that Travis and I both wanted to tackle because at some point, a lot of DMs with at least a passing interest in strategic fights is going to want to do this concept justice in their games. But that's the tricky bit, is that to do it justice, there are so many different areas that you can fall down in trying to do this. Like, D&D is just not built for this, really. It's like big climactic battle set fights where you want it to feel like the end of Lord of the Rings or just this, this climactic huge thing. You want it to be dramatic, but for some reason, it's very difficult to hit that. Well, I mean, the basic issue is that Dungeons and Dragons is designed in a way that focuses on a small group of heroes as the combats and its rules just aren't built for dozens or hundreds or thousands of combatants, which is the vision that we've always got churning in our minds of how epic and grand this is going to be. And maybe you've been in this position yourself as a DM, but this goes off the rails really quick. Like if you've thrown in five too many enemies into a <laughs> typical combat or even multiple factions. So you've got the players, you've got the enemies, and you've got some other mystery faction that's maybe fighting against one another. As soon as you add too many elements to this bubbling crockpot of bad, it becomes cumbersome, annoying, frustrating for the DM, frustrating for the players as the DM silently rolls 30 different dice Okay, just just a second. I got to tally this. Who does that? Who does this? Okay, like give me 30 minutes with a calculator and I'll come back and tell you who did what per turn. Like, my God, it just becomes a slog. Yeah, absolutely. And then the players are, you know, starting to have side conversations about something else. And that grandness and that sense of overwhelming odds you wanted to convey is just lost. There's no tension at the table anymore because math. Yeah, and... The specific feelings that we're trying to capture when we're trying to run this, like we set out with the best of intentions. We wanted to have the players feel like they're going against insurmountable odds and powerful foes. We want them to feel like heroes because they choose to make their stand against this insurmountable force. They need to fight to defend whatever in this situation requires their heroic defending of. We want twists and turns as the battle changes and morphs right in front of their eyes. We want the eyes as big as dinner plate kind of reactions as they go, oh no, this is happening now? And then we want the opposite of that when they get something on their side that changes the odds and they want them to cheer because they think maybe they'll be able to tackle this. And in the end, we want their victory to be strategic, not just because they had bigger blows. Yeah. So this all sounds like uh, <laughs> quite an endeavor. This is a conundrum to solve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've made a ton of mistakes in trying to bring this to our tables. <laughs> I mean, we've made every mistake in trying to bring massive combat to our tables. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is when you throw too many weak enemies at the party and the party is super safe, they're just slinging their weakest abilities because that's strategically superior. And now you've just got turn after turn of cantrips and arrows. 
Yeah, and everyone's rolling like 50 D4s. Yeah. It doesn't have a lot of drama to it. We're just waiting to see whose numbers are better than whose. And especially if the enemy isn't really putting up much of a threat, we're not even waiting to see that. We're just waiting to see how many rounds it takes for firebolts and arrows to kill a bunch of kobolds. I recall trying once to have the players do something that was like helping a battle because I felt like, oh, since I'm I don't want to do hundreds of enemies, I'm going to have the players try to help the hundreds of opposition in some like task based like, oh, you have to go and get the ammo for the trebuchets and get it to there. Otherwise, they won't have any ammo and they'll be swarmed. But seems dramatic. Yeah, it's, it feels dramatic. That would work in theory, right? But <laughs> no, all of a sudden, now you've got dramatic epic heroes doing the task of the lowly squire who's like just... <laughs> Just running ammo to the real heroes that are running the trebuchets. And you're now calculating distance covered on foot. Oh, the what? best part of D&D. <laughs> that sucks. I've also made the enemies too weak and underwhelming because I kind of designed it with normal combat in mind. Yeah. But in this situation, if you've got your heroes defending something, usually there's going to be defenses in place like walls or something. So your enemies aren't directly doing damage to the party. That means that your party is going to be automatically a little more powerful because they're behind the defenses. So crank your enemies up, make it dramatic, give them something to really worry about. The other danger here is targeting the player characters as some kind of objectives, like the enemies are there to kill them. And now in the face of these overwhelming odds, I can tell you from a player's perspective, that feels like the DM is just out to get you. <laughs> like, it's not like you're being heroic. This is a hit squad that is there to put your player character in the ground because the DM has just described 50 enemies there that are saying, we're going to kill you. Yeah. And that's not fun either. It feels like maybe the DM isn't going to stop until you're dead. Totally. And when you give the enemies a different objective too, you've got now the situation where if the party flees, they've failed. Not if the party flees, then the enemy continues to chase them and it's now a chase and it's a totally different feeling than what we were trying to evoke. Exactly. But some things that can really shine when you do this well is you get the opportunity to showcase the character's most powerful abilities. Like give them those moments to feel heroic as they're standing atop the wall, raining down their biggest and best things against these epic foes you can also allow players to do things that are outside of their normal skill set you can give them abilities that just aren't usually available to them and what's great about wave combat is that we can keep ramping the tension up every single wave we get to give that feeling of oh my god can we survive this yeah and you've also got quite a bit of flexibility here that you might not have in regular combats. Like with a wave of enemies, you can call for a retreat and regroup if it's necessary to take a tiny bit of pressure off the party. Like if you're just swamping them and they didn't realize how bad this was going to be, then, you know, dial it back a little bit and come on real strong again. It allows a DM to be flexible and to cater to the fun of the party to decide what's next instead of throwing all of your players into a gigantic set piece battle from which there is no escape and there is no end until you've defeated all of these enemies. Well, that looks like a slog. 
Yeah. And you've also got the ability to modify the time between waves. Like if you just kicked the party's ass, you can give them a little more time to, you know, throw up some boards or replenish their resources a bit. You could even give them a short rest. A half an hour between waves? That's fine. We can be flexible and we can make sure that the party is always having a great time. Yeah. Or, you know, if the party just annihilated your first wave and you kind of did some poor calculations, then you can throw an extra wave in there real quick keep the pressure on so obviously wave combat is the way to go we're gonna hop into the strategy state room to detail how to pull this off as a dm this is the strategy state room where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most all right so we've got some steps to preparing for wave combat we're gonna start by determining the objective. Then we want to design the environment, allow for our players to prep. We design the enemy, design the tools, and then prepare for chaos. Cause it's coming hard and strong at your game. So let's start with the first step. We're gonna look at determining the objective. Right, so as we touched on, you want the enemies not to be focused on the players, but rather on some secondary objective. You can do things like, you know, they're defending a MacGuffin from being destroyed that's within their defended walls. You can have them defending an important individual that's going to turn the tide in the overall war. Yeah, or you can even do something like holding the line and stopping a force from reaching we're getting past. Totally. With our example that we did, the basic concept was to defend a ritual from a group of gnolls that are coming to stop it. Something like the rifts to the abyss have opened up or are opening and you've got a group of wizards behind you that are furiously and rapidly trying to close it up. Yeah, and we want to make sure that like this focuses on the players. So those wizards, they're fully and completely engulfed in trying to cast this ritual so like all of them are going to be completely useless in this fight they are helpless as babes do not tap them on the shoulder asking for fireballs because you're going to ruin everything <laughs> yeah you're gonna you're gonna end up causing them to create some other spell <laughs> next you gotta design that environment so first of all it's really fun to have these take place in a fortified location of some sort because then you've got stuff between the enemy and the players giving you the ability to beef up those enemies like we were talking about and to introduce some strategy here it's really powerful to give three different access points to the objective if you do much more than that you're going to get way too complicated but make each of them slightly unique so you know if you've got a simple fortress you're going to have a front gate the walls that you know, people always try to climb over and maybe we can do some kind of a tunnel. Yeah. And honestly, this is holding true for wherever you want to fight. If it's a cave, then there's a well in the cave, but there's also some little murder holes that are beyond the player's reach. Like there always has to be a couple of different options. And we typically like to go with three because I'm sure that there's some psychological research behind this. <laughs> but if you offer two options, the players will always find a third. And if you offer four, then that's just paralyzing. Which 
option do we go with? If there's three, then the players can easily keep track of where their weak points are in their minds and go, okay, we need to defend these three points. Right. It's enough that you can split up, you can work together, you can make really strategic choices around those three options. Totally. And then it's nice to give one final layer of defense between the enemy and their objective too. So, you know, when they've swarmed past the gates, there's just one thing left stopping them from completely annihilating those wizards. And that's some of the tensest gameplay you've got. We want it to get there. We want it to reach that final stage by the end of this combat. So whether that be like a spell that's giving you a wall of force or, you know, just some reinforced doors between them. Or just a really beefy, tanky guard. Yeah. So in this case, we've got a small, isolated fort that's surrounding maybe a uh, a place of extreme magic ability. And that's why the wizards have chosen this spot. They say, hey, we can go here. We can actually close this weird portal to the underworld that the gnolls want to see opened. And the reason we built this little fort here long ago was because, you know, it is such a magic hotspot. Something bad was bound to happen eventually. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. It doesn't have to be extreme. It can be flimsy. It's just enough <laughs> to keep the narrative moving. So I'll keep it super simple with our fort example. It's got the front gate, the escape tunnel, and the walls. And all three of those feel like the players have these defenses. Like that's what we want to try to give them that sense of is that this is the place for their final stand because it is well fortified. Those doors have stood for thousands of years and those walls, while they look kind of dilapidated, honestly, it's better than fighting in the forest. (laughs) Yes, much better. So we have the players that have chosen this space and we've prepped it for them. So it's an obvious place to have this battle. And then we need to let the players do some preparations because their minds are already worrying as to how to fortify this place. Now, this is one of those spaces where the players, as soon as they kind of get familiar with it, they're going to do a little bit of looking around and they're going to go, is this the place? But they're going to find some advantages, a crate full of ballista ammo or something like that, that they say, hey, we can actually use this. This can be helping us in our defense. Yeah, it's definitely good to put some basic resources around the place that they can play with. I've been in this situation and I've wanted to dig some trenches or put some spike walls down. And we do this because of two reasons. A, players love making battle plans. Like, chances are you've run into this. I know you and I have, Jordan, but you've probably DM'd a setup to a boss fight that the players spent three quarters of the session just planning. Or trying to plan and getting nowhere. (laughs) Now, that might be a little bit overkill, but the truth is is that part of the game is planning, and players love to do it sometimes. So we're going to give them some time, and we're going to offer them some resources so that they can lay their battle plans. Now, sometime, but not too much time. You can't just let them go ham. It's nice to put some confines on it. Like you've got, you know, half a day. Each one of you gets to make one major amendment to the defenses. And this is where that ticking clock concept comes in. Yeah. By saying, hey, they're going to be here at midnight. And you as the DM, in order to push this agenda along, just has to remind the players how long it takes them to do each one of these things. Like the clock is ticking. It's now noon. They're 
probably going to attack at night. And when you're doing this, you got to make notes on what they're planning because you have to consider how it's actually going to help their side in the fight. Because without that, this is all pointless. Now, the DM secret here is that you're planning on this having a major impact in the battle. You want it to feel satisfying. If the enemies don't fall into their traps, then that feels like such a ripoff as a player. So whatever the players do, it's going to have a massive impact on the battle, and it's also not going to have a massive impact on the outcome. What I like to think of and reference when I'm trying to lay these kind of plans down is there's a specific mission in Call of Duty where you as a player and as a team are expecting this huge wave of enemies that are going to come and attack this cabin. And you arrive there to find out that there is a whole bunch of landmines and claymores that you can lay all over the cabin. The trick is, is that there isn't enough to cover every single entrance. And as soon as the enemies run into one, it sets it off, it's been used up, and now it's just gonna be a raw fight because the enemies have fallen into that claymore. You got like three or four of them with it. You're like, yeah, that feels really good. Oh, I laid that trap. Oh shit, there's more coming. Like that. <laughs> that's that's the feeling that we're trying to yeah. achieve here. You just need that little moment of, of, we did it. We took some down before they got to us. And we know that had an impact on the combat and the numbers that are about to attack us. But you as the DM know that ultimately you're in control of those numbers and what you need to happen is still going to happen. Yeah. So next, we need to design the enemy. Right. So again, we're going to that rule of threes. A great place to start is with three waves of enemies because it gives you a chance to continue to raise the stakes, but it doesn't stretch this out into a multi-session affair. And it lets you build up with your first two waves to a more complex third wave that's going to incorporate everything that came before it. So well, I'll explain what I mean by that. The first wave... Imagine as expendable shock troops, like the enemy is throwing their simple bruisers at the walls. Their strength is going to be in their hit points, in the fact that they can just be consumed, basically. This is where some of those preparations are going to make a huge impact early on. Their goal is to weaken or breach those access points, and their tactics are going to reflect that. So if you've got three groups of simple gnolls in our case. One of those groups is going to be bringing a battering ram to the front gates. One of those groups is going to be trying to find a way to tunnel in underneath the walls. And the third group is going to be escorting a knoll that they've packed with dynamite or has got some demonic infestation that's going to help them <laughs> blast a hole in the wall. And the cool thing here is that you can have two of the three being defended. Like, whatever preparations the players did, it works, and it works beautifully, and it decimates the enemy. Except, like in the Call of Duty example, they didn't have enough claymores for every entrance, and that means there's always going to be a weak spot, which means that one of those is going to suffer some major damage. And when you're running these groups as the DM, you've also got to find a way to take down a bit on the math of all of these enemies. So what we always do is we'll take three or four gnolls and turn them into a swarm. We'll give them an HP pool and we'll figure out a way to simplify their attacks and turn them into one enemy. What feels really cool about this is when you do have, say, a sorcerer who's able to cast fireball, even though those enemies are kind of spread out and maybe if they were to cast fireball, it's not gonna actually affect 
all of those enemies. If you're using a pool, it means that any extra damage spills over into the next enemy, which means that wizard can potentially take down three or four, regardless of where they are on the battlefield. It just, it feels really satisfying to the players, and it's easier for you to run as a DM when you pool enemies' health together. Yeah. So already we've got one enemy type, but they're doing a few different things. It feels pretty dynamic. The players got lots to do. They defeat that first wave. Now it's time for the second. This one's going to be a little bit more elite forces. Their strength is going to be some special ability. Often it's good to turn to a unique form of locomotion, whether that be flight or tunneling or something like that. You can do a lot with this. It just means that however they're making it to the front lines is going to be different than the first wave. Maybe the gnolls travel with a spellcaster that's able to cast darkness, and now they're unseen as they make their approach. Or they're being dropped from hot air balloons. Who cares? <laughs> they're able to get and close that distance different than the first wave. And to keep it super simple with our gnolls, we're going to throw four groups this time. So we're upping the stakes. Oh no, that last one was three groups. Now we got four groups. There's more of them. It's more dangerous. And we're going to just give them a climb speed. It's not a part of their stat block, but that's a really easy modification to make. These gnolls have all got some big ass bone pitons that they're going to use to try to scale the wall when they get close. That's another one of those player moments of like, uh oh, new tactics. Yeah, they're running on all fours and able to get to the walls super quick. And now they're climbing it before the players even realize what's happening. And you can keep their goals as simple or complex as you want. So with our Noel example, we're going to give them a few simple goals. The first, continue with any of the weakened points of entry that the first wave made progress on. The second goal is to climb the fortress walls. And the third is to stealthily try to get around to another side of the wall. And now one of these groups has to get further than the last wave did. They have to really kind of press the attack and make the players feel like they're on the defense all the time. Each wave, the enemy should make some progress. And finally, your third wave, which is going to feel real overwhelming because you're going to mix together at least one group of the first wave's shock troops, the second wave's elite troops, and you're going to introduce a big bad, nasty boss to this fight. This is the one that lands that, oh shit, we're way over our heads feeling. And their goal is to finish the job. So the tactics that our gnolls are going to use are going to be pretty simple to keep track of as a DM because the shock troops are going to behave just like they did in the first wave. The elite forces are going to choose a goal from that second wave. And the boss, simple, pure destruction. Forward, <laughs> progress. And they're able to cut through certain things with ease that the previous waves were unable to do. So I feel like this would be a great opportunity for an early show of power and force. Absolutely. So in this type of example, for instance, we've described that there is this tree line that the gnolls keep coming out of. And this is like their staging area somewhere in the forest. And as soon as this big, bad Mamma Jamma Knoll, you know, which, which is decorated by all kinds of bones and stuff like that, it's going to come out, it's going to roar. And uh, I don't know, the other knolls are maybe a little bit expendable. It's kind of disappointed maybe with the performance of some of its troops. So the one of the 
shit scared ones that has yet to run in on the tree line, it's just going to rip it in half or it's going to cut <laughs> it down. Like that's the kind of shock and awe that we're going for. Yeah. You are order and they are chaos. Let them be chaotic as hell. If the players have fallen back to some further defense somewhere or they've been beaten back a little bit, some of their, you know, the door is maybe just Barely pretty trashed. On. Yeah. It's going to kick through those doors like they were nothing. Yeah. So for our knolls, we're going to use a flind, which is a medium-sized knoll. I think it's in Volo's Guide to Monsters. It's got a super powerful mace, and it is beyond strong. But for this kind of combat, I say, why not make it huge-sized instead of medium-sized? Because you want it to just dominate and intimidate. That's the purpose of this thing. Yeah, this knoll had some kind of pituitary gland malfunction, and it's just grown beyond its normal size. Yeah, big mutated and nasty. So that covers our enemies' plans. Now we need to design some tools because our players are in over their heads. We've established this time and time and time again. So we need to give them something to help them out. And you're going to use what you designed with the monsters to determine what to give them. So that first wave, we're going to give them a cannon to even the odds because you're trying to impact the strength of the first wave, which was just their hit points giving them something that does a ton of damage. They found this, they prepared this beforehand. They're ready for the first wave. Right. Then that second wave, we need to give them something to counter or maybe even grant them the special skill of whatever elites you're throwing at them. Well, I feel like for this, this is one of those things that was like sitting in a crate that they hadn't quite opened. And maybe some of the damage from the first wave reveals this like special thing. A secret room kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And within that secret room now, you know, it was previously locked, but some of the damage caused it to be opened. And now they have the counter to uh, whatever that special ability that whatever those elites can do. So maybe if our elites are quick at climbing, this is a magical flask to fill some of those. What are they called when you can like, you know, they, they used to boil hot pitch in and pour it over the castle walls. Yeah, basically cauldrons. Yeah, you've got a whole series of empty cauldrons. And now we have a magical flask that will fill them with lava. <laughs> sure, Why not? let's do it. Something crazy like that. <laughs> and then with that third wave, you know, the big bad has just come out. They're on their last legs. The party's feeling pretty intimidated at this point. So you want to give them something that makes them feel that comeback moment. Like, oh, we can still do this. Put it all on the, on the line. Now, what I love about doing this is that because we've got mixed waves in this final wave three, we've got the basics, we've got the elites and we've got the boss. Now, giving one player something that will counter this, whether it's a magical axe or it's a well, heck, it could simply be a super suit. Like whatever the case may be, we're giving one player the ability to go toe to toe with the boss while the rest of the party just desperately tries to hold back the rest that would absolutely overwhelm that one player who's still fighting the good fight against the big bad. Now you can make this something general so that anyone can kind of pick it up and be the hero of the day. But you can also, you know, you know your party. So if there's a barbarian that's always the tank and everyone feels really good about that, then making an item for that barbarian. Or if there's somebody that hasn't gotten the spotlight in a really long time and you want to give them a chance to shine, then focus on something for them. And a way that you can direct your players to choosing who you want this to be or whoever wants to step up. 
So if you see your players trying to have this conversation of like, oh shit, who's going to do it? Who's going to take that axe? All you have to do at the very last minute is a little bit of flavor. So if you want your ranger to take it up, well, it's got the insignia of the ranger's clan from back home. If you want the cleric to do it, it's got his holy symbol on it. So you can often help the players make this choice if you're finding them to be struggling with it. Yeah. And it's also got to be something that's introduced in this third wave, which will require a little bit of creativity on your part, but it'll be worth it. So in our case, as the massive knoll comes out of the darkness, it's holding an axe in its offhand. It's got its mace whip and a huge intimidating axe. It roars, whipping the surrounding knolls into a frenzy. It destroys a couple of knolls with it, like you were saying, Travis. We're going for pure chaos. Maybe the rest even clamber onto that arm. They're all going for the axe. They all want it. It shakes them off. It's pissed as hell. It targets somebody on the wall, one of the party members that's watching it, and it just overhand throws the axe at them. Maybe it throws the axe at the door, and that's what goes through the door, completely destroys any possibility of keeping this third wave at bay, but at the same time, it provides the opportunity to the players to grab that axe. Absolutely. And what we're going to give our players is a modified Berserker axe. So those that aren't familiar, it's got a curse on it that makes the character wielding it go berserk pretty much all the time, just attacking the closest enemies. So you're going to have to get them on that front line in front of that massive knoll. And there's the chaos that we're after. But we're going to make it more powerful because this is going to be a temporary item. Its magic is going to wear off after an hour or so. So let's make it a plus three axe. Let's make it enlarge the wielder giving us that Titan versus Titan feel. And let's give it bonus fire or lightning damage, something like that. And this is going to create that battlefield chaos that we're after so much. We can allow the players to just have fun in this space. It's going to be hairy. It's going to be crazy. Everyone's going to be on edge. But holy hell, we just got a super axe. And now maybe (laughs) there's some hope for us still. What I really like about this approach of building up to this last fight is that kind of like we've talked about with puzzles, you've introduced elements to the players that they've learned and now you're combining it all so they understand the terms of engagement. There's a couple of elements that are new, but it's not like you're just throwing absolutely new stuff at them every time. And finally, you got to prepare for that chaos as much as you can as the DM. You want this to go as smoothly as possible. So, you know, if you're at all aware of the concept that in some situations, more prep equals smoother gameplay, now's the time to put everything you know into practice. You want to at least detail all of your plans out in initiative order ahead of time. Like you don't even need to try to put each of your groups into the initiative and figure out what everyone's doing. Simple piece of paper. You're writing down your three waves. You're reminding yourself exactly what those waves goals are, what they're going to be focused on, their initiative roles, and overall HP that you can just start scratching off as they whittle each one down. Determine your baseline amount of time between waves that you're going to give the party. One minute's a good start because it keeps the tension on, but you can adjust that as needed. Of course, you need all your stats and applicable rules handy, but most importantly, you want to have the success, the climax, figured out. So how does the party know they've won? In our case, once victory seems pretty likely with that third wave, we're going to have the gates to hell being resealed by those wizards. 
We've done it. We've given them enough time to accomplish their task. What you don't want is the party trying to chase down the stragglers that are running through the woods and and finally you get them and oh, oh, I guess that's it. Everybody's that it anymore? Yeah. Okay, we won. As soon as the objective has been completed, when you're ready to call or quits and say, okay, you know what? They've fallen our big boss and we've done a lot of damage to some of the other elites and some of the basic units. As soon as that has happened, the wizards have closed that gate. And all of the players hear this huge noise that sounds like a, a new dimension being rended away from our plane of existence. An earthquake knocks everything and everybody down. Love that, because immediately after that, all of the other enemies, they've receded into the woods, they've run super fast, and the players can sit there and go, huh, we've done it. And there's no recourse for these enemies anymore. There's no reason for them to come back. There's no real reason to pursue them because we've accomplished our goal. Yeah. So to recap the steps, we've got determine the objective, design the environment, allow for preparations, design your enemy, design tools, and then prepare for that chaos. Now, we would love to hear what we missed. Is there any tips or tricks that you have for running any kind of combats like this, we'd be really interested to hear your stories of how this has either worked for you or how it hasn't. What happens? What was the best wave combat that you have ever run? And what made it shine? And if you want more forces on the field, unfortunately, the 5th edition rules just aren't the greatest for it as is. Yeah, we would honestly never recommend trying to run more than say 15 whoa, 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 i don't know whoa, whoa, whoa. yeah way too many too many <laughs> so keep it simple that's why we batch all of those enemies together but yeah like you say the fifth edition rules really do not support warfare even though the game is centered around combat so that's why we're going to go to the temple of inspired hands to look at a few different ways that you can make massive warfare happen this is the Temple of Inspired Hands, where amazing products and revolutionary ideas are brought to light. So yeah, what do we do when we want to get into larger groups of combat? We want battlefields, we want troops everywhere, thousands more! War! War! Sometimes you're just craving it. Well, you choose one of these three options. And we're going to have all of the links available for you in the show notes, so don't worry about that as you're listening. The first option is the simplest. It's DM Dave's Mass Combat Rules that are on his website. These rules are pretty great because you don't need to introduce a whole new system to your party. You just make a few tweaks and all of a sudden you can do some pretty big combats. The basics are that it takes the 5th edition rules and lets you create units out of individuals. So each unit is a stat block with all of the recognizable elements of an NPC stat block, and it functions similarly to a swarm. Just puts a bit more detail into it than we described with the hit points. So DM Dave provides a template for creating your own units. Each unit has 10 individuals in it. The player characters can join units and become a part of them, or they can command units. Commanding a unit lets you direct their actions, and it also lets you influence their morale with your character's charisma. So basically just takes an entire unit of soldiers and turns them into an NPC. Yeah, and it uses the 
distinct characteristics of whatever base stat block you're using and makes it something interesting. Cool, simple, easy to use. Yeah. So it's good for larger battles. We're talking dozens, maybe low hundreds, but it's still not great for massive scale. So that's where we come to Baldurans Guide to Kingdom Building, which you can pick up on the DMs Guild for 25 bucks right now. And it's kind of neat because after you start using these basic rules for kingdom building, you can also pick up kingdom-based adventures that Adam Hancock, the creator of this, has also made available on the DMs Guild. That's super cool. So the way this works is you build settlements and a group of settlements as a kingdom as a central element of the campaign that you're playing. Like if you're not going to really focus on this, you probably don't need this rule set. But it's pretty cool in that it allows players to get invested. That's what I like about systems like this, where you do get into kingdoms or settlements or followers, is that it gives the players a reason to care about the world that they're living in. Yeah, you're right. Like it lets you really get invested. And the way this system works is it layers it on top of the fifth edition rules in a way that doesn't subtract from the standard adventuring that you're going to be doing. Like it doesn't make it so that your players stop adventuring and they just focus on kingdom building, which I think is really important with supplements like this. So settlements, you and your enemy's settlements are going to essentially have their own character sheet. Now, Adam Hancock has built these character sheets in a way that really closely mimics the character sheet that you're used to in fifth edition, but just uses some different terminology. Like, for example, you're going to have industry scores instead of ability scores. That's going to be things like warfare and health. And you're going to have decrees that you can undertake instead of actions. And the book includes a lot of stat blocks that you can use for potential enemy settlements that you can just drop into your games. Very cool. So the way that combat works is you send your units out. And as the supplement suggests, the units are like arrows in the settlement's bow. So it's not going to be each combat is a, a big drawn out thing. They're going to target a settlement and they're going to go after a specific industry score like military if they're strictly combat focused but your unit could also target their health with plagues and diseases or loyalty if they're trying to run a smear campaign on the ruler okay this is getting interesting now right it's a much more comprehensive take on how settlements can actually affect each other than just combat got it so to win you take one of a settlement's industry scores like the health or warfare I was talking about, down to zero. Once you do that, you can choose to raise or capture that settlement. And that's basically it. I'm digging it. I'm excited to try it. And of course, you can make alliances, because just like in real life, you don't need to kill everyone you come across. Don't become a murder hobo kingdom. Come on now. <laughs> and like I said, your characters are still focused on adventuring, because let's say they want to build a new settlement. Well, first they have to negotiate or eliminate some hags or, you know, different groups of monsters that are in that area before they can start building. And you can continue your kingdom building with heirs or descendants. So, you know, this goes on as long as you want. That's super cool. And the last one that we'll make mention of is, of course, the Kingdoms and Warfare rule set created by Matt Colville. Now, this is a new rule set that just kind of came out recently and it provides a simple and streamlined set of rules for connecting players intrinsically to the kingdoms that they're involved in and the neat twist on this one is that they use domains 
domains. Now those domains can be a lot of different things, but essentially it's a miniature character sheet that echoes the character and is deeply intertwined with them, which also grants the character powers and abilities for having that domain. Okay, that's pretty cool. So my character has a big effect on the domain. Totally. Nice. And the domains are at your player's command, and there's an intrigue system here that represents the relationships that a domain has with other neighboring domains, similar to the last one that you mentioned. So intrigue builds and then blows up. And when it does, you have the warfare aspect of this rule set. So players get slim character sheets for their domains, and then you add commanders in there and magic and unit tiers. The whole thing is there. And what's really neat is that those battles can happen in massive wars that your player characters can be a part of, or they can be happening in the background while your players complete other important tasks. Very cool. Gives me a lot of choice on to what my character is actually up to. You throw in more stuff like monsters and magic items, and this book has a lot to offer. So you can find that one at mcdmproductions.com for 30 bucks in PDF form, and a hardcover is coming very soon. Well, I gotta say, all three of these sound pretty cool. My problem, once again, is wanting to play games with 22 hours of every day. <laughs> and I can't do that. Yeah, these very detailed, simple systems require us to play more D&D. <laughs> so I think at this point, we should probably end this podcast and go and figure out how to do that. Yeah, maybe we'll just dig a hole somewhere and live in it, play D&D with all of our time. Our patrons are always welcome to join us in that hole. Thank you very much to Felix R. Chris F. I see spiders where there are none. The Senate. Lucas D. Lila G. The GM Tim. Nevermore. Thomas W. Tyler G. Ty N. Heavy Arms. Eric R. Aldrost. Leprechaun. And Will HP. We'll see you in the hole. As they say. <laughs> As who says. <laughs> us thanks to tabletop audio for the sound effects that you heard in this episode you can follow us at hook and chance on twitter facebook instagram and reddit you can join the excellent community of players and dms that hangs out on our discord do that because that's where we want to hear some of your stories about wave combat did it work for you what happened and how much did your players love it thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening and, and see you in the hole games.